0: Welcome to My Name Is Not Steve, the podcast by storytellers about storytelling with people not named Steve. Hey, my name is Pete Bauer.
1: And I'm Dorothea Bauer. And
0: welcome to the third episode of My Name Is Not Steve.
1: We are still not named Steve.
0: That's correct. We are storytellers who like to talk about storytelling. And today we're going to talk about the creative inspiration, the origin for ideas and so forth. In the first episode, we talked about identity, for example, how the name of this podcast came into being. And then the second one we talked about what happens when you ask yourself what if? And that's the the creative spark of storytelling where you decide, what if a shark starts eating people on the beach?
1: What if a pebble can secretly be a galaxy? Actually, I think it was a necklace. That was men what? in black. <laughs>
0: <Jeez>. Wow. Okay. <laughs> no, it was
1: it was a necklace around the cat in men and men in Black. That's awesome. It wasn't a pebble, but it was small enough to be a pebble.
0: (laughs) We want to talk about the origins of things, but first, let's get an update, don't you think? I think. (laughs) (laughs) That comes in handy sometimes. Okay, Neil and Prey, we're almost done with the process. We're very excited about getting that out. We're looking over the notes that the editor gave us. We got those back. We're making those changes, and we also were able to get some teen beta readers from a friend of ours, And we're really excited about that, to get one more round of beta reading before we release the book. So that's going to be exciting to do, get that feedback. That's our target demographic. So that's going to be awesome.
1: It is going to be awesome. And it's very exciting because it's very hard to get teen beta readers. Yes, it is. And we have some now. Yes, we do. Which is awesome.
0: Yes, it is.
1: Excellent.
0: So last time, I talked about this really cool idea I had. You remember?
1: I remember you introducing the idea of talking about this really cool idea you yes. had.
0: Yes. <laughs> it, it was an introduction to something that I had just thought about and have since dismissed, mainly because it was kind of a, a an issue with logistics. It may still be useful in the future, but at this point, I'm not going to invest any energy in it. So that is a what if that has been put on the back burner. Excellent yes
1: i'm so glad we've shared that i know we've taken time to talk about it for two episodes oh
0: my gosh next time we'll talk about this idea i haven't even thought about yet that i won't even use excellent yeah i love it yeah it's gonna do it let's do every episode we'll do that (laughs) (laughs) it'll be like a series of stuff we're never gonna do
1: useless ideas 101
0: (laughs) that would be so awesome
1: you know the sad thing is i wouldn't be surprised if people actually listen to that podcast yeah (laughs)
0: Gosh, I don't know why they don't do that, although I'm not clear what they're doing. So as I mentioned, today we're talking about those creative inspirations and origins of ideas and things like that. It's kind of uh, the seed that may be planted years before you actually ask those what-if questions.
1: And this kind of started for you when you were working in the film industry.
0: It did. It was. It's a combination of a couple things. When I got involved in the micro cinema film landscape, I interviewed a lot of filmmakers because I was trying to be successful in that area. And this is when the, the original idea first occurred to me. And then I looked back on my own life and found that also applied to me. To put it in perspective, the micro cinema landscape is in the 90s. It was the first time that film was digital. Video was digital and not analog. So you could edit it on your computer. The internet was new. You could distribute it across the world. And so there were all these filmmakers that were trying to make films as cheaply as possible with the best quality that they could. So I was involved in that. It was really kind of cool. Met a lot of people that I am still friends with today. And so I I wrote a book called 20 Questions, and I interviewed a whole bunch of these filmmakers that were kind of on the cutting edge of this micro-cinema revolution. And one of the things that came up over and over again is a moment in their lives where they saw something or read something or did something that kind of planted that seed that then affected them going forward. There's a filmmaker, Tim Ritter, who did a lot of horror movies, who talks about seeing horror films when he was a young kid, and that he wanted to recreate those. Another guy saw um, like a con movie when he was a young kid, and so he wanted to recreate a con movie. And so I thought back on my time, and and when I was in college, I was in a film class, and this is before you could see films readily available. Like, you know, if you wanted to see an old classic movie, you had to get the film from the studio, and then you actually had to get a theater to show it. So it wasn't like streaming or, or available on DVD. I remember in film class, they showed Rear Window, Hitchcock's Rear Window, which ended up being my favorite movie. And this was one of my favorite film experiences as a viewer because it was an audience full of teenagers or 20-somethings. It's a packed theater. People are watching this movie that they've heard about but have never seen before. And at one point in the movie, everybody screamed out loud. And i had been to a lot of movies in my life. I've never heard that happen. It was such an awesome experience that I realized as a storyteller, I wanted to recreate that feeling for other people if I could.
1: Well, and that experience also began, for you, a lifetime love of Alfred Hitchcock movies, yes. which you then shared with me Yes, in my childhood. Out of
0: love. <laughs> not, not in an effort to emotionally scar you or stunt your growth.
1: No, but actually, I do remember telling someone when I was in college that I grew up on Hitchcock and Disney movies. And they looked at me and said that it explained a lot.
0: That is such a weird combination.
1: So one of the most powerful moments for me watching Hitchcock films with you growing up was watching The Birds. I remember very specifically there was one scene where Hitch's directing was so powerful that it scared the crap out of me. Yeah, It's the scene, for those of you who've seen the movie, where Tibby Hedren is waiting outside of the school on the playground for the teacher. And for those of you who've seen the movie, that's all I need to say.
0: Yeah, it was pretty awesome. But here's what a freakazoid you were as a child. (laughs) This is what I loved about it, because we both love movies, is I transferred, I matrixed all of my love of this stuff and all of my (laughs) knowledge of this stuff to you as a kid and, and through your teen years. So when you got out of high school, you really had a college education plus a lifetime full of stuff. Nine years old when you watch The Birds. I'll never forget. Because we watched The Birds. I built this movie room in my house, and so we watched it in there. And, you know, it's two hours long. And it ends and, and you're like, okay, dad, let's watch it again. Except this time, tell me what the director was trying to do. I was like, what nine-year-old wants to do that? It was so it was so awesome. So we did. We went back to the major scenes, specifically that one where she's outside and she sees these crows and they're landing on the, the jungle gym in the background while the kids are in school. The way he manipulates the audience was just brilliant. and I think uh,
1: that's a trademark for him, too, is, is manipulating the audience into thinking something and then tricking you because you're entirely wrong about everything you thought.
0: <laughs> well, what he's really good at is he puts you in the protagonist's shoes. So suspense works when you know more than the characters do. And you see things coming and the characters don't. So if there's a bomb underneath a table, he uses this example a lot. He's like, if two people are sitting at a restaurant, right, and a bomb just goes off. And gosh, in today's society, that's so much more realistic than than it was when he talked about it in the 50s. But if a bomb goes off, that's a surprise. He goes, suspense is that you see the guy put the bomb under the table before the people even arrive for lunch. Right. And so you have more information than the protagonist does. You want to scream through the screen and say, don't you see what's happening And in that particular scene in the birds, he gives you an idea that these birds who have been attacking people all over this town are slowly forming in a group behind Tippi Hedren as she waits and she smokes and she kind of doesn't see these birds flying down there. And so you think you know more than she does. And you want to scream through the screen, say, you know, turn around, turn around, the birds are behind you. And then he does it in such a pattern, it's like a bird then another bird, then another bird. And he gives you this cadence of the number of birds you should expect when she finally sees it. So then she sees it and you're like, good, she caught up with me. And then she turns and follows the birds. And then when she turns around, the whole place is covered with birds, which suddenly you're as unprepared for that moment as the protagonist is. And you're put right back into her shoes. So he did this all the time. He was so brilliant about making you know more than the character and then immediately bringing you back into the character's shoes at the same time. It's It was brilliant. But that was the one particular scene that you wanted to talk about the most.
1: I will say, though, as a child, I became very aware of where birds were in my life. <laughs> it's
0: kind of hard when you live in Florida and they all come down here for the winter. <laughs>
1: From that moment on. Yes.
0: You know, and another thing that really kind of altered, and and one of the things I I found when I look at these seeds that were planted, these origins, either with the filmmakers that I interviewed, or I would watch interviews with directors like Spielberg or Martin Scorsese or whatever, is that it usually happened with kids like when they're between like 10 and like 15 is usually when some moment would happen, I guess when the world was still kind of awesome and magical. Something was so magical to them that they just wanted to recreate that feeling for others. I found out recently that my dad's brother, my uncle, wasn't a storyteller. And my dad was such a storyteller. And I realized that's where I got that from. And then I kind of found my own path when my dad brought home in the 70s a reel-to-reel black-and-white video camera from Sony. It was for work. And back then, there was just three channels on television and maybe a PBS channel. To be on that little screen in your living room or family room had to be some magical event because you had to be on one of the networks and the idea that we could record ourselves and then actually see ourselves on television, I was, I think, 11 or 12 at the time, all of a sudden it it became a paradigm shift in my brain like, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to create stories that are on that television and I can do that now because this technology that never was available before was now available. And so that was my first tangent off of my father's storytelling roots that became my own and that's how it started me down the whole path that i've been on since i was a little kid and the funny thing is is that my brothers and i and our neighbors made um (laughs) we used the camera that weekend to make the most horrendous western ever to exist (laughs) ever ever it's so awful One of
1: your neighbors kept doing the saloon doors (laughs) for the rest of his (laughs) life. Every time he walked
0: into the room, he would make believe that the saloon doors were there. And no one else did. It was just... But the cool thing was, is my brothers picked me up and they threw me off the counter. And I slid down the counter, like in the old cowboy movies. I slid down the bar and then I fell under the couch. And that was cool. But anyway, but then we watched it, right? This horrendous, horrendous piece of filming. But we watched it and it was like, oh my gosh, we can tell stories and they can end up on that screen And so 35 years later, here I am.
1: Writing stories that don't end up on screen. Right. So nothing's (laughs) changed.
0: (laughs) And it's interesting to me about that idea that something is so amazing to you as a young person that you want to recreate that feeling for others. I know Martin Scorsese shared, I think it was an Italian director that he saw in the movie theaters that had very dramatic camera movements. And when you watch his movies, they're complete ripoffs of that camera movement because that camera movement was so cool to him he's like i want people to experience this in my movies it happens all the time it's really cool
1: so for us it really started because we were both working in the film industry and in theater recreating things that inspired us in a visual medium but when you transitioned from doing filmmaking to becoming an author that changed a little bit
0: yeah and it was well it was hard as hell <laughs> <That> was, <laughs> oh
1: i remember that i
0: know you you <laughs> If you get into heaven, that will be one of the key components was your patience during that transition period. Um, so when I was in the entertainment industry, and I, again, I did a lot of different things. I, I wasn't high up or that important, but I was involved and I, I wrote screenplays and they won some awards and things like that, And as we talked about before. So I knew I could tell a story and it was a creative outlet for me. So even when, when life changed and you came along and I needed to get a real job and so forth, I still wrote a screenplay a year. Just because that was my creative outlet. I remember just looking at my I have them right in our office here. I have like 30 screenplays that there's stories I liked that I created, at least most of them I liked. Some of them were pretty awful. But I just realized no one's ever gonna see those. And you know, we originally had a, a film company that we wanted to use to try to tell our stories. And then when the economy went south, that option no longer became available. So It just seemed like a natural progression with the advent of self publishing that, man, maybe I could tell these stories that are really important to me in a way that actually other people can see them. Yeah, isn't that nice? Yeah, that's what we started down the the Gabby Wells novel series.
1: Which is really funny because I remember being a kid and sneaking into your office at night to read your screenplays because I was afraid you wouldn't let me read them otherwise because you were so protective over your stories, especially if you didn't think they were good enough. You were just like, oh, I don't want you to read that. That wasn't very good. So I, being a rebellious child, decided, well, that's not good enough for me and (laughs) snuck into your office and would read them at night. So it's kind of funny that now what you do is you write stories for other people to read. (laughs) That is funny. (laughs) When I had to go to such lengths. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) I had to turn you to the dark side. But you know, the reason was is that when I wrote those screenplays, I knew that they were for my own creative outlet. So I would just have an idea, and I would try things just to see if I could pull it off. They weren't intended really for people to see them at that time. If they were, they'd have to be rewritten, and and I was okay with that. So a lot, there's a lot of stories on my shelf that I'm like, well, I don't want you to read that one. It's not age-appropriate for you, or it covers material you shouldn't read, or it was a failed experiment, and I don't want you to read that as an example of what I write. So yeah, that was part of it.
1: So obviously, I read those first. And, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and you still love me, which is amazing.
1: <laughs> so as you transitioned from being a screenwriter to an author, one of the things that also changed was going from writing experiences that were important to you as a filmmaker to writing experiences that you don't actually see being told.
0: And this is true for you too, right? I mean, when you think of stories, it's not what's out there, but what you feel should be out there, right?
1: Well, yeah, I think that the stories that are really successful nowadays are successful for a reason. They're obviously the things that people want to read and the stories that people find very inspiring. But there have been a lot of stories that have come to my mind that I've written because it's a story that I don't really see. A lesson that you taught me when I was a kid was that every good movie, for the most part, has a love story. It's not necessarily a romantic love story, but it generally is. And because I'm a heartless robot, (laughs) um, (laughs) I became very interested in these stories that were not romantic in nature. I liked seeing stories about siblings fighting for survival or about a father and a son reconnecting. And those stories aren't told as often, but I really think that they're important. Or stories about best friends who are just best friends, not something more, because there's a lot of different forms of love, and I think they're all important. And so even though other people may not be interested in reading them, <laughs> they're the kinds of stories that I personally like to tell. I mean, I think they
0: can be really powerful stories. And you're right. You know, we talk about this at home. The easiest thing that a writer can do is a sex joke, right? An innuendo, a play on words or whatever. It's, it's, to me, it's, it's lazy writing because it's obvious. To dovetail off of that, certain stories about lust or new love or n- and stuff like that. People love that in romance. There's nothing wrong with that. But you see that... Yes.
1: In... <laughs> Everything's wrong with it. Is... Romance is stupid.
0: You're not a robot. I've told you. No, the... You don't
1: know.
0: It's just that it's, it's very common. And there's, as you said, there's so many other expressions of love I really love and and this because I'm a dad and you don't see it very often. I love the stories of like father son stories, like Road to Perdition. I love that movie a lot because it's about a father son relationship. Or, you know, what about the sisterhood of the travelling pants, right? That's a story of of friendship. (laughs)
1: I'm sorry, I just wasn't expecting you to follow Road to Perdition with Sisterhood of the Traveling
0: Man. I'm very well rounded. <laughs> you don't know. No, but I mean that's another story that was very successful, both in, in novel form and movie form about friendships, you know? So to your point, I think that we take those original areas of inspiration, then we try to fill the gap that is missing in our life. Like I I'm a devout Catholic, so I look at stories through that lens. It's just part of my life. One of the my wife's favorite stories and i think one of your favorite stories i wrote was a catholic version of vampirism and there's too many things about the common vampire lore that offends me from a catholic perspective
1: like the fact that they're demons
0: no the fact that they <laughs> they drink blood for eternal life it's just very it's it's a mockery of catholic teaching and catholic imagery so that always offended me And so I thought, well, what if vampires are real? And how would the Catholic Church deal with vampires in that respect? And then what were their origins in relation to that?
1: You're going to write that story, aren't you?
0: Yeah, that will be the first novel of my second series of books. Yeah, it's really, I can't wait.
1: So it's a while away, but I'm really excited for it. Yeah. you Because it's my favorite screenplay that you've ever written.
0: But here's the funny thing, is by the time that I do that, vampire stories will be out of vogue.
1: I'm ready for them to be out of vogue now.
0: (laughs) So I'm going to bring them back.
1: But the way that you- Or it'll
0: be way too late. (laughs) That's like my two options.
1: The way that you tell that story though, is very different. It's not like vampire stories are today. Yeah. And vampire mythologies existed for a very long time, so no, I know it's, it's... not just something that came about recently. <laughs>
0: no, and so the same is true with the Gabby Wells stories. I mean, that's basically a Nancy Drew story, albeit much darker.
1: And one of the reasons that occurred to us was because we have a lot of cops in our family. And one of my cousins was interested in becoming a narcotics detective. And his boss literally told him, no, you can't do that because you're Catholic and because your faith matters to you. You aren't going to want to say what they have to say or hang out where they have to hang out. Right. Because most of that work gets done in places like strip clubs.
0: Right. And you have to lie and deceit and maybe even take drugs or whatever. And so he was protective of my nephew's soul, really, or spiritual being, and and said, no, this is not right for you. And that kind of struggle, just again, through the Catholic perspective, is what if someone was like a, a Nancy Drew type character, but as her faith grew, all of her skills had to be adjusted to add faith to that layer. She's really good about getting things done by deceit, but as she grows, you know, she has to realize, well, how does my faith play into this? And she has to make a decision, and sometimes she does it well, and sometimes she does it poorly of am I gonna do what my faith asks me to do, or am I gonna do what I know I can do even though it may be wrong?
1: This is a tangent, but do we live in a much darker world? Because there was a point where people were fed to lions for entertainment. (laughs) <laughs> so i just i don't think that <laughs>
0: well it has i guess it's cyclical but it's cyclical but the nature i mean you know gosh you look at television in the 50s you know in the 40s was we leave in,
1: it to beaver in the 40s that
0: was in the 50s and 60s yeah we do live in a much darker world hell what's on television and everything would never be seen before i have no idea where that's gonna end by the way i mean i don't either it's like where does this end where stars are like, "No, nah, I just think I should be nude whenever I want. I, mean, I just where does that end as a society? It's just I don't know another question for another day.
1: We're getting really deep here on yes. my name is not Steve. <laughs> that's true,
0: <laughs> but anyway, that's part of the thing of of you take these origins, whatever's that moment in your life that's inspired you, and then you take it and and to make it your own, I think you look at it as. Well, I love, you know, horror stories, but I want to tell horror stories from a Catholic perspective, or I want to tell a mystery novel series from a Catholic perspective. And again, they're not necessarily Catholic fiction or, or Christian fiction. I think people will enjoy them that that are, but they're just from the Catholic perspective. And that used to be much more common because the Catholic Church's teachings and beliefs were far more understood in society, so it wasn't such a, a leap. Christianity's taken a big hit since the '80s, and it's gone downhill from an entertainment perspective. And now Christians are, are primarily uh, ridiculed, or, or shown as hypocrites, or two faced, or whatever, uh, judgmental, that sort of thing. That's also another thing that bothered me, is I, I kind of wanted to say, look, there's a lot of people. That we hang out with, We're people of faith, uh, a lot of our friends are people of faith, and it's just part of the conversation we have in our life. You know, it's it's not extraordinary in that sense; it's ordinary, and we never see that in entertainment.
1: We've been very serious this episode. We
0: have. All right, I want you to be funny. Ready? Go. All right, no, it can't be visual.
1: It has to be visual.
0: No, that's this is a this is a talk show. But there are rules. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then I will help out. Three strings go into a bar, and they go to the bartender, and the first one goes up and says, I'd like a beer. And the bartender says, we don't serve your kind here. So he leaves, and the second string goes, I'd like a beer. And he's like, we don't serve your kind here. So the third one, seeing this, twists himself around, messes up his hair, and the bartender says, aren't you a string? And he's like, afraid not.
1: What do you do with a dead chemist? What? You bury him.
0: Yeah, we should go back to visual comedy.
1: (laughs) Barium is an element. FYI. <laughs> if you have
0: to do that, it's not a, it
1: it's not a, a joke. It is a joke. It's hey. a joke for smart people. I actually didn't know it until a few days ago when a far more intelligent friend of mine shared it with me.
0: So two cannibals are eating a clown. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and one cannibal turns to the other and says, does this taste funny? It's the worst joke ever.
1: <laughs> What's the best time to see a dentist? Nine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's the funniest joke I've ever heard. The correct answer was (laughs) 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 2.30. Oh, those
0: are all awful.
1: So let's do a spoiler alert. Yeah, let's go (laughs) on to spoiler
0: alert. So what is our spoiler alert? And we have to do something about that alarm.
1: Wait, no, I know another joke. (laughs) Uh,
0: I really missed the alarm all of a sudden. All right, go ahead.
1: Why don't Americans knock? Why? Because freedom rings. Oh, come on. That's so awful. <laughs> Yeah, take that, Canada. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. Can I go back to spoiler alert? Yes. Because I don't want to hear this alarm again. Okay. Spoiler
1: alert.
0: <laughs> How to find out who's going to win Chopped, generally. Now How do we do that, Dorothea?
1: Well, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about last week, which is the amount of screen time people get kind of determines their importance. So on Chopped, if you've got certain contestants that are getting more screen time or backstory than others, you can guess at least who's going to make it to the finals.
0: Right, yeah, because they invest more energy in their backstory. There have been times where the backstory's been really cool, and then they blow it the next segment, so they get cut. But generally, if you see... (laughs) That's not the sound effect. If you see (laughs) them invest a lot of energy... And certain people, you'll know who usually will get to the final. They used to do this more so than now, but they used to be really obvious in the sense of when the judges are talking, if they're really down on someone, they win. Because they have this long conversation that they edit. Right. So they piece it together to make you think, that person doesn't have a chance. And then they win. They've done that less, but there was a time, I don't know, about two years ago, where we'd just watch it and go, well, they don't like that food, so obviously that person's going to win. So anyway, that's kind of how you can know who's going to win Chopped. They get around it every once in a while, but usually it's all about backstory, like we were talking about today.
1: Screen time is important.
0: Yep. You only have so many minutes. I think it's down to like 40 minutes for an hour because of all the commercials, maybe 42 minutes or something like that. Anyway, that is our show, Dorothea. Wasn't it exciting? It was a little deeper this time.
1: Yes, it wasn't exciting at all. It was very... Pensive? Yeah. No. No. <laughs> <laughs>
0: You can't even agree what it was. We I, I just need, did it. We just to, did it.
1: I need to think about it a little bit more. Uh, I'll get back to you. <laughs> yeah. We'll just
0: wait. The whole audience, we'll just wait for you to come up with the right word. Go ahead. Go. No,
1: that's not the
0: sure. <laughs> So that's it for this time, Dorothea. Do you have anything else you'd like to add?
1: If you'd like to contact us, please feel free to comment in the comment section below or email us at, at com also if your name is steve and you would like to defend it we would love to hear from you so please do not be afraid we're only a little mean always
0: yes so (laughs) you know what i'd love to know though from our listeners is if they have that seed that origin moment i'd love to know what sort of entertainment event in their youth was so important or instrumental for them that it stuck with them so if you'd like to share that please let us know in the comments section that would be awesome
1: So that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for joining us, and we can't wait to talk with you guys next time.
0: Yep, we'll see you soon. Or, no, dang it, we won't see them soon.
1: No, come on.
0: We'll talk to you soon. We've been through this. We have. I'm very disappointed in you.
1: Well, I'm disappointed in you. Okay. (laughs)